A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is our keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we pause together to come before you in prayer. We worship you this morning. We worship you in song. We worship you in prayer. We worship you in fellowship and in service. We've worshiped you in giving. And we worship you now, even in listening to the instruction from your word. We acknowledge that you alone are God. There is none like you. You are high above all so-called gods. You are greater than anything we might run to. We might be tempted in this life to run to, to find strength and help. You are greater. And so we acknowledge that at the, at the outset, at the beginning. We worship you. We praise you that you've given us the opportunity to be here together, that we get to open your word in front of us. We get to sit together in one room and, and listen to what your word has to say. We praise you for what you've done for us. And mostly we praise you for what you've done for us in Christ, that you have saved sinners that we might be reconciled to you and have right relationship with you. We, we rejoice in that and we praise you. And Father, as we turn to your word this morning and we, we turn to it, we, we, we desire to focus on your word and see what you have for us here. We desire to learn from you. And, and yet we know that thoughts from the week past and the week coming will creep in. I pray that you would Help us to limit those. And when they do, I pray that our passage today would be applicable to help us in dealing with this life in which we live. So we commit our time to you and we submit ourselves to you and we look forward to what you have for us from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This psalm has been one of my favorites for a long time. It's something that uh, I have returned to again and again, and when I run across it in my regular Bible reading, I rejoice when I get to Psalm 121. I, there's a lot of power there. There's a lot of comfort there. And I was reminded of that this week as we were joining together on, on Tuesday nights. We have a, some, some of us men have a Bible study together, and we were coming together for our study this week. And, of course, that was Tuesday. That was right when the news of, 
of attacks and whatnot um, and tensions with Iran and uh, growing uh, hotter and things like that. And in a situation like that, we immediately turn to prayer. I mean, we want to hear some facts. We want to hear some some things, what's going on with that. And and uh, we have, you know, friends there and we it impacts us a lot and we pray about that and we are concerned. And so we we go to the Lord in prayer. And that's uh, that's a good and right response, because oftentimes when big things in life happen like that, that are these are world events. These are beyond our control. We can't we can't make something happen. We can't stop something from happening just because uh, we're human or something like that. We it's beyond our control. These are big world events that could impact us greatly. And particularly we think of those among us who are. Uh, in the military and those who have been among us who are in the military and closer to uh, that stuff, we, we, we wonder. And we trust the Lord because those things are beyond our control. But, but even in the day-to-day life that we live, there's so much that is beyond our control. When loved ones drive on the road and you, and you pray, you pray because, uh, you know, you, you may have... Uh, you may be a great driver or you, your loved one may be a great driver, but, but it's, a, it's a wide road and there are a lot of people driving on it. So these things are beyond our control. And, and so where do we go? What, how, how do we find help in that time? Well, today's psalm takes us uh, to some solid answers about where we find help in time of need for the huge things in life and for the small things in life. And so... This psalm, for those reasons and others, is one of my favorites. The, the psalm really opens up with the first couple of verses asking the question that's on everyone's mind. Where can I get help? You see, this, the second line of the psalm there, from where does my help come? The psalmist acknowledges, and this is one of the beautiful things about the psalms, is that it's not all just heady logic and putting things together and, and, and things like that. It's not even entirely about instruction. It's, it's about the psalmist coming with a real legitimate concern or problem or struggle or something like that and, and working through, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how to understand, how to live life how to see the world and understand who God is and, and where I fit in this whole picture in light of sometimes very difficult circumstances. And so he cries out, from where does my help come? He realizes that he needs, needs help. Sometimes you run into a person who has the attitude of one of my children who, uh, when, when much younger, would always say, I do it by self. I do it by self. So we're still working on the English grammar thing, but, but had understood that this child wanted to be independent, right? Don't, I don't need help. And then you'll have other children who are happy for you to feed them for however long, happy for you to, you know, clean up their room or do whatever. They're just happy to be taken care of, right? Because they recognize that they need help. And really, there are four kinds of people in this world who need help. The first is those who recognize that they need help and they ask for help. Those people are a blessing. And they're rare. Secondly, there are those who understand that they probably need help, but they're afraid to ask until they've bungled things so badly that they're forced to ask at some point. Thirdly, there are those who don't see their need for help. And so 
they press on until they've messed things up so badly that others step in and assure them that, in fact, they do need help, despite what they think. And then there's a fourth category of people who need help. These are those who, who think that they, they don't need help at all, and so they press on, but they do so with such boldness and, and, and such strength that those around them are kind of afraid to tell them that actually you do need help. And so they just let them drive the thing into the ground, though in fact they do need help like everyone else. There are four kinds of people who need help, but there are no kinds of people who don't need help. This is everybody. Whether it's help in understanding the Bible or how to navigate a relationship or deal with some kind of heartache or a particularly difficult situation, whether it's wrestling with one's own sin or not having the strength to be able to do what you know how to do, the fact is that everybody needs help sometime. And of course, there is one situation where absolutely every person needs help. And that's the relationship before God. No person is able to undo the sins that they've already committed. And no person is able to move forward and commit no more sins. Your sin has to be dealt with before God. And that can only be done from outside. That can only be provided by help from without. And so what are some likely sources? The, the question is, where does my help come from? But, but uh, what are some likely sources? And I get that because he starts off the song, psalm by saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come by the way, this is, it's called a song of ascents, meaning you're ascending, you're going up, you're approaching Jerusalem. The idea is you're approaching Jerusalem for a time of feast or something like that where you're going to worship there. In the Bible, it's often called going up to Jerusalem, even if you're going south, because you'd be climbing mountains to get there. You're going up. And so this is a song of ascents. This is what you should be singing, what you should be thinking as you're approaching. And as you're approaching Jerusalem, and I've never been there, but as you're going up the mountains... If you're going through struggles in life and you're wondering how to navigate, your eyes would naturally lift up to the hills and they're the biggest thing around you. And he asks, from where does my help come? And he asks that as he's lifting his eyes to the hills. There may be a couple of reasons for that. One, I think, probably most simply and and maybe even most likely is that as you're approaching Jerusalem, you'd be looking around and seeing and you look up to the mountains and, and, uh, and kind of ponder, where am I going to get some help in my life from? But there's a second reason, and that's a theological reason. You see, the, the nations surrounding Israel at that time, they were pagan nations, and they tended to see gods as having geographical jurisdiction, right? So they'd be the god of the desert, or they'd be god, the god of the mountains, or of the sea, or of, the, or of those different places. And we can see an example of that in uh, First. Kings chapter 20 and verse 23, and I'll just tell you the situation, but, but this is a struggle that was going on between the, uh, the nation of Israel and the Syrians. And there had been a previous conflict, and the result of that previous conflict was that Israel had defeated the Syrians. And so they were discussing with one another their battle plans. And of course, theology is important, and so their theology even crept its way into their battle plans. And so this is what they say to the Syrian king when they're pondering the fact that they had been beaten before and they were thinking about this next conflict. And they said, well, their gods are gods of the hills. 
And so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. So the the problem before was that we fought too close to the jurisdiction of their God. We fought in the hills. So let's don't do that. Let's go back to the jurisdiction of our God and have the battle there. You see, they saw God's as having a particular geographical jurisdiction. And so that may be kind of what goes on. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Am I going to get help from the God of the hills or from the gods of the hills? And I wonder what, where you go to find help. Do you go to Alexa? <laughs> do, you, do you go to Google? I don't know where you might find that. But, but what about the larger problems of life? I mean, if you're trying to, you know, change, a, uh, you know, some parts on your vehicle, you might go to YouTube or something like that. But what about the more important, larger issues of life? What if your marriage falls into trouble? Where are you going to go for help? What if, what if you lose someone dear to you? Where are you going to find help? In such a situation, what if some egregious sin suddenly becomes appealing to you? Where are you going to find help? Where will you go? Where will you look for help in time of need? Will you go to your friends? Will you go to drugs or alcohol to medicate? Or maybe you will medicate with sex, some sort of immorality. And in our day and age, it probably the, the most respected, the most revered, the most trusted source of help would be a psychologist or maybe a psychiatrist to get help in time of need. Where are you going to go for help? Probably if you look at our culture and even if you look in the church culture, you will find that each one of those in its own time is a likely source of help that a person would turn to. So what's the final answer? We've looked at what the, what the question is. We've looked at other likely sources, but what's the final answer? Well, he concludes strongly in verse, verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You see, all these other places that we go to for, for solutions, the, the places we go for help, did you re- realize that they all exist within creation? They all exist in this plane, in this sphere where we are. They all exist in creation. And the psalmist makes a very obvious point. I would rather go to the Creator than to something within the creation to find help. And so he says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's the Creator over creation. There is an infinite distinction between the Creator and His creation. He is infinitely superior to His creation, including all alternative sources of help. And so, He's the Creator, and so He has authority to give what is needed. And He's the Creator, and thus He has the power to be able to give what is needed. And the rest of our psalm is going to make the argument that he is also the creator who commits himself to keep his children from what would threaten him, threaten them most. So he has the authority, he has the power, and he cares to do it. And that's the rest of this psalm, verses 3 through 8. 
He explains his answer. He explains his answer of why the Lord is his helper. Now, just a a footnote here as we go through this. You probably noticed that verses 1 and 2, he's speaking in the first person. I, me, my. And then verses 3 and following, he switches. This is as if a person is speaking to him. He says, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord will not let your foot be moved. It's as if someone is speaking to him. And I think just in passing, this is an important part for us to to remember. Was he right in verse 2? He asked the question. He asked the question before God. He even made a strong answer. And he says, the Lord, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So he makes a good stand. And the remainder of the passage is encouragement he receives from without. It's encouragement he receives from another believer who says, that's right, your help comes from the Lord because the Lord is your keeper and the Lord will not let your foot be moved and the Lord will take care of you and the Lord will... This is encouragement coming from the outside. And I think there's some instruction there for us that often we don't go to God's people for help. God's people may not have the best answer. They may not have a ready answer that they can give you immediately. But God's people, functioning as God's people, will encourage you in the Lord. They will direct you to Christ. They will point you to God's faithfulness. And so as you're going through a struggle, and I don't know what struggle that might be in your life. Maybe, maybe you're just coming out of one, or you're right smack in the middle of one of you, or you smell one coming on. Don't leave aside God's people. Go to the Lord for help. And go to God's people. Don't try and handle that on your own. The psalmist doesn't. He receives word from the outside, even though his answer was perfect. He passed the test. It was a great answer. But the answer needs explanation, and it's the believers around him who give him this explanation. First, God is always on guard. Verses 3 through 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He is always on guard. I like that first line there. He will not let your foot be moved. If you've ever tried to push a vehicle that's stuck in the mud or stuck in the snow, the hardest thing about it is you can't get traction, right? You're pushing and your feet are slipping and you end up often on your face or whatever. Anyone who's ever had to push out a vehicle in that kind of a situation knows what he's talking about. You, 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 you're pretty sure you could push the vehicle if you could just plant your feet. And that's the imagery he uses here. He will not let your foot be moved. When a load is pushing against us and it's so massive, we can't stand it. Or maybe it's a load that we are supposed to push, but our feet keep slipping. He will not let our foot be moved. When the weight comes against you to push you, or when the time comes for you to push that weight, God keeps your feet firmly planted so that you can push. So that you're not moved. And he continues and he says, He who keeps Israel will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It's as if he's on guard duty to protect you. But he never falls asleep. He's always paying attention. He's always alert. He's always aware. He's always looking out for what might attack you. 
He knows. He's not caught unawares. He's not caught off guard. He's not caught looking the other way. I have all manner of plots from movies coming to mind where a bad guy or even a good guy in different cases will throw something to distract the person and then, you know, the guard looks the wrong way and stuff. The Lord never falls for that. He never falls asleep at 2.30 in the morning when, when the guard is tempted to fall asleep. The Lord is always awake. He's never caught napping. So when the attacks of evil come upon his children, he's always attentive to their needs. That's the kind of guard you want. That's the kind of help you want. He's always there. He's always on guard. And secondly, he is a protective shade. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. I, I wasn't born in Nevada, but I grew up here. And so because I grew up here, I have a love-hate relationship with the sun. Probably each of you does too. I love the sun, and I love the fact that the sun shines all the time here, or pretty near all the time. And in other places where I've lived, when it'll be gray for week after week after week, I, I brag about Fallon, where the sun shines. And uh, I love the sun. It keeps it warm, and in the wintertime, it doesn't really matter what temperature it is. If the sun is out and you can get on the south side of a building, you will get warm. I love it. I love the sunshine. But I'll tell you what. If the temperature is above 60 degrees and I have to stand out in the sun, I'm going to find shade. Always. I just don't like it. It doesn't even have to be hot. I don't know what it is, but, but I will look around and go stand in the shade if at all possible. And I, I think the person I'm talking to who's continuing to stand in the sun is a little weird. Okay? Why would you expose yourself to the sun like that? Get out of the sun, right? Well, Israel's a desert climate not entirely unlike our climate here at least at certain times of the year, that the sun is powerful. The sun is powerful and can do a lot of damage. And the psalmist knew the devastating effects that the sun could have. And so he pulls out this very powerful image that someone who lived in the desert could relate to, someone who knows what it's like to be out in the field or out in the desert or out alone looking for shade, just wishing you had some shade. So he uses this image. God is the one who protects us from evil like a shade tree protects us from the sun. The sun blazes all around, making the whole world out there unlivable. And here you are nice and cool under the shade tree. That's kind of the image that he's using here. And I I like that image because I can relate to the sun and I can relate to the attacks that you can be exposed to, the, the way you leave yourself vulnerable when you stand out of the sun. When you leave yourself out from under the shade tree, the shade that God provides. He says, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. I'm not sure why he mentions the moon there, maybe just to complete the imagery. Uh, that's possible. It could be, uh, you know, also that he's referring to uh, sort of these mythical ideas are, you know, of being moonstruck or of lunacy, which is all connected to the moon and things like that. Maybe he's referring to something like that. Or it's possible that, you know, in, in reference to the pagan theology of the world around them, where he's talked about the God of the hills, you know, and in the God of the sun and the God of the moon, that those are all evil influences. Uh, those are, those are 
evil gods who might attack you or whatever. And his point would be that God is going to protect you from any such evil attack. No such God actually exists. He is infinitely superior to them. God is superior to those things. He's superior to whatever might be an attack upon you. He's also faithful and he's able to protect his people from them. And so a point of application arises for us right here. Is God the shade on your right hand? In other words, the true burning force that we ought to fear and seek shelter from is not not just the sun, but it's the fiery fury of God's wrath against sin. We need protection from that. We need shade from that kind of fire. The amazing thing about the God of, of the Bible is that He is both the one who has such hatred for our sin, who pours out wrath upon sin. He is both that one and He is the one who provides the way of escape. He is the one who provides for us to be delivered from that wrath and the the heat of the fury of God's wrath. You see, Jesus came as a substitute for us to go to the cross where God's wrath for my sin was poured out in full, standing right in the sun for me. So that God's wrath for the sin that I have committed, the punishment that I fully deserve, the punishment that you fully deserve. God took that wrath that was directed at me and instead poured it out on Christ. He bore it all. Like a shade tree whose leaves bear the sunlight and, pr- and protect those underneath from the heat of the sunshine. The cross of Christ is where Jesus himself absorbed all of God's wrath for me and for all who put their faith in Christ. Are you safe from the wrath of God? Are you safe under the shade of the cross? Or are you still exposed out there in the sun? Are you bearing the heat of that yourself? Are you, are you exposed to the wrath of God that, that could be poured out for your sin at any time? My exhortation to you would be turn to Christ. And trust in Him. And you will find salvation in Him. You will find that God will be the shade at your right hand. So that you can be delivered from that awful wrath of God. But he continues in verses 7 and 8. And he talks about protection from all evil in all of life. Verses 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you. From all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He will protect you from all evil in all of life. If you think about that, that is a bold statement. That God will keep his children from all evil in all of life. 
What can he mean? How do we understand what he's saying? I mean, Christians are still exposed to evil in the world. You know that by looking at your own life. You know that by reading your Bible. That Christians still go through challenges and hardship and trial and struggle and pain and loss. Evil. But he says the Lord will keep you from all evil. How can it be that he protects us from all evil in all of life? What can he mean? Well, here's what he means. We are protected from all evil in all of life in the sense that the evil that strikes us has come to us through the Father's decree, through the Father's hand. He wasn't looking the other way, and evil snuck by him. He wasn't taking a nap, and evil came to you. The evil that comes to us, the hardship that comes to us, the struggle, the trial, the pain, the loss, comes to us through the Father's good decree. And so the struggle that comes to your life, you, you should view that in a very, very different way. When you think about it in these terms, he makes such a bold statement. The Lord will keep you from all evil. But Lord, evil still hits me. The Lord says, I know. I know. The Lord lets that evil hit us. He decrees that that evil be for our good. So we never get very far from Romans, do we? Romans 8.28 He causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so it's not just that God takes a bad situation and, and somehow switches it around so that it can come out okay or, or even come out pretty good or come out second best. God is so sovereign over all things. Being the Creator that he actually decrees that these things be. So that when the psalmist faces struggle, when he faces pain and loss and trial, and we don't have any context for what his pain or loss or trial was. But when he faces that, he knows that this thing came right through the Father's hands for me. He protects me from all evil. And any evil he doesn't want us to have to experience, any, any evil that would be destructive or, or, or that would, uh, as if he weren't paying attention, any evil he doesn't happen to us except by his own decree. And this is a hard thing for us to grasp. This is a, a difficult thing, but the psalm doesn't make sense without the truth of it. He will protect you from all evil. Well, if God isn't really sovereign, if he's not really the one by whom, at whose decree these things encounter us in our lives, this statement is a lie. So think about your own struggle. Think about your own hardship. Think about the difficulty that you face, and some of it is extremely, extremely painful in a way that I can't comprehend or relate to. But he can And he decreed that that thing be in your life. 
not for an evil purpose, but for a good purpose. And you might even be able to think about different circumstances in your life where evil has come. And maybe with the perspective of years and maturity, you can see, well, the Lord worked good out of that. Or it may be that you see no such thing. And it won't be until the perspective of eternity that you'll be able to make sense out of what good could possibly have come out of that evil in my life. That may very well be the case. But you can still trust that God, who is the creator of all things, is also sovereign over all things. And He will keep you from all evil. And so what that means practically is that maybe there's an evil person in your life. Or maybe this is an attack of the enemy. And that evil person, that enemy means it for evil against you because they hate you, because they hate your God, because they're just destructive or they couldn't care less about you and and they'd be happy to knock you out of the way. They mean evil by it. But God himself sees things differently. God himself decrees things differently so that he intends it for good. So that he intends it for good. I could give example after example in Scripture, but think about the death of Jesus Himself. The greatest evil, the greatest injustice ever to happen. And everyone involved, Pontius Pilate and Herod and everyone else involved, meant it for evil. They wanted Him gone for one reason or another. But God meant it for good. So that when it comes to us, because we have a sovereign God, because we have a God who is the creator and is in charge of all things, when it comes to us, it doesn't really matter in the end how evil the person who does the thing to us meant it to be. It doesn't matter if they tried to destroy us. The fact that it came to us means that it came to us through the sovereign and good decree of God, and they meant it for evil. And God meant it for good. That's what Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20. His brothers who sold him into slavery, they, they, they debated killing him at first. And they decided not to do that. They eased things up a little bit. They ended up just selling him for money into slavery. And all these things happen, and they're back together. And, and what does Joseph say to his brothers in, in Genesis 50, 20? They were worried that he was going to have retribution upon them, that he was going to get revenge because now he was in a position of power, power over them. And he says, you meant it for evil when you sold me into slavery, when you threw me in the pit, when you beat me up, when you did everything that you did to me, when you wished that I were dead and you told my dad that I was dead. You meant evil. God meant it for good. The same events. And so that, and that is the only way that we can understand verse 7, I believe, and be consistent with Scripture. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He is the creator 
powerful, powerful over all. And the evil that comes to us is not intended by him to be evil for us. But it is for our good. And that's how Paul can say in Romans 8 that he causes all things to work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We need help. We need help. Some of the things we face are just too big. Some things, some, are, some things are too complicated or they're too whatever and we need help understanding or other people have gone before us and they can give us advice, they can give us wisdom. But some things in life are just too big to handle. You can't do it. And maybe you're an exceptionally strong person, but you cannot handle your own sin. You just can't do it. That's one enemy you cannot defeat. That's, not, that's one problem that you cannot solve on your own. It would be the height of arrogance to think that we who were made from the dust of the earth, Genesis says, would need no help. It would take arrogance mixed with a profound ignorance about ourselves to believe that we can live independently from God. When you realize that you are in serious need of help, whether in the struggles of this life or in preparing for the life to come. The exhortation from the psalmist is to look to the Lord. Don't look chiefly to other sources of help that are ultimately inadequate and will fail you. Look to the Lord. He is your creator. He has all authority. He has all power. And he has all desire to give his children the help that they need most. He will be your shade to protect you from harm. And in Christ, especially from the harm of his wrath, which you have brought on yourself by your own rebellion and sin. And in his wise and loving and sovereign governing of all of creation, including your life, he is the protector from all evil in all of life. Let's pray. Father, I have no conception of what evil those in this room might be facing. I have no conception of what they might be remembering, the evil from the past, the attacks, the loss, the death, the hurt, betrayal, sickness, they might be facing currently or remembering or looking fearfully towards in the future. I don't know what that is. But Father, I agree with the message of this psalm that you are our help. You are our creator. You never fall asleep on the job. You are the shade at our right hand. And you indeed will keep us from all evil in all of life. That is a deep truth. Help us to believe it. Help us to live accordingly. Help us to trust you in that way that we would seek shade at every turn. And Father, I pray for those who are out in the sun, who are 
standing in the path of the wrath of God for their sin, who will bear that wrath in their own body for eternity unless they come to Christ, unless they believe in Him, unless they come under the shade. Father, I pray that You would do that. I pray that You would draw to Yourself those this morning who are standing out there, maybe shaking a fist at Your wrath. Do Your worst, God. Spare them from that folly, from that destruction, I pray. And Father, for the rest of us, we rejoice We rejoice that you are our help. We find peace in you. We find joy in you. We find help and hope in you. We thank you for Jesus who came as our substitute to go to that cross to bear the heat of the wrath of God for us in full that we might have life. So, Father, send us out with that thought. Rejoicing in you, trusting in you, looking to you for help and not to, not to what this world has to offer, not to those things which are within creation and therefore inferior, but to you, our Creator and Lord and Savior. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.